you know, the relationship between environment and trade is like the relationship between EU, US and China. We have to be better at factoring in what some see as an unfair game and an unlevel playing field. What role will trade play in the global economy of the future? Can the multilateral rules-based trading system survive? Or will nationalism and protectionism lead to a world of trade barriers and trading blocks? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2020, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this podcast for the AIG Global Trade Series 2020 on what now for sustainable trade, the climate agenda, and the global trade system. My name is Rem Korteweg. I am a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, and I'm joined today by two truly eminent experts in the worlds of trade policy and climate policy. Geneviève Pons is Director General of the Brussels office of the Jacques Delors Institute. And Pascal Lamy is the President Emeritus of the Jacques Delors Institute and, of course, former Director General of the WTO and former EU Trade Commissioner. In this episode, we will explore the link between the future of the global trade system and climate action. Geneviève, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to a discussion about nearshoring, reshoring, reviewing supply chains and self-sufficiency. But what impact has COVID-19 had on achieving climate objectives? And secondly, politicians and business leaders today are very much focused on getting the global economy back on its feet. And it seems that dealing with climate concerns has taken a back seat. So how should we see this and how should we respond to it? I will focus on the European example. Yesterday, I was taking part to what we call the Forum Mondial de la Mer, taking place normally in Bizerte, but it was by video conference. And Peter Thompson, the UN ambassador for the ocean, was talking. And he took the EU as the model of what should be the reaction of all countries in the world. The EU has reacted to the COVID-19 crisis exactly in the way we can wish if we are concerned, as I would say any normal person should be, with climate change and all the disaster, environmental disaster, we are now experiencing in the world. The EU has reacted, making the recovery plan an occasion to accelerate the energy and ecology transition, the green transition. And this is exactly what we in Institut Jacques Delors, but also Europe Jacques Delors, which is the name of the new Institut Delors in Brussels, we had advocated exactly for that. We have published a paper, Greener After, pleading for the EU to take this occasion of the fight for recovery as an occasion to accelerate 
the transition. And I think that this is what we have on the table, and this is the direction that has to be taken. And what in that paper that you mentioned, Greener After, which I can highly recommend, what are the policy proposals in terms of the discussion today inside the EU is connecting the green agenda, the green deal to the multi-annual financial framework, but also to the recovery plan? What else can we do to try to connect, on the one hand, the economic recovery and these climate ambitions that we all share? What we propose is to choose investment on the basis of three criteria. First, of course, job creation, because so many jobs are destroyed by the crisis and creation of economic activity, of added value, that's the first criteria. Second criteria, acceleration through the investment of the transition. And finally, the possibility to invest immediately, meaning that the technical tools are there, the legal tools are there, and the investment is ready to be made. Using these three criteria, we recommend investing in a certain number of sectors. First of all, of course, renovation of buildings to make them much more energy-proofed. Second, mobility, away from fossil fuels mobility. Then, a lot around circular economy, especially waste collection and treatment and wastewater collection and treatment. And finally, we have developed something special around sustainable tourism coming from the fact that many Mediterranean countries have been hit more than other countries in Europe and that they need to relaunch their economy while continuing to fight against climate change and for a better environment. So this is what we have advocated maybe two weeks before the Commission published their own recovery plan, which is really impressive uh, piece and uh, going uh, into the right direction. I would add something which uh, is not yet published, but about to be published. We propose that a big part of the 750 billion euros that the Commission will borrow on the markets be emitted through green bonds and social bonds in order to be sure that it will be invested in the right way and where the needs are and where the acceleration of the transition can really happen. Pascal Lamy, over to you. What Geneviève mentioned is that the EU is being seen as a leader on global climate action and is also getting compliments for how it is now using the recovery as a vehicle to also drive forward its climate agenda. But when we look at the connection between trade and climate, we see that the EU is also taking initiatives to connect the two worlds. For instance, the Franco-Dutch non-paper, which highlights a very strong connection between sustainability and trade. But we also know that the global trade system is in dire straits. So how, in your view, can the EU deal with this apparent tension between, on the one hand, promoting trade liberalization and saving the global trade system, if you will, and also introducing 
climate conditionalities in its free trade agreements, or, and we'll get to this a little bit in more detail, a, a carbon border adjustment. Well, I think your starting point is absolutely correct. The trade planet and the environment planet need to be coupled. I'm not saying recoupled, I'm saying coupled, because they've been in totally different places for a very long time, starting with the fact that the trade planet is 30 centuries old and that the environment planet is half a century old. The world has been trading for 30 centuries. The world has been starting to care seriously about environmental issues for half a century. The vision, the the sort of thinking behind both is also very different. The trade thinking is openness, let's open, open trade works under some conditions. The environment thinking is the other way around. The environment thinking is let's protect the environment, uh, let's protect uh, ecosystems, let's protect plants, animals, climate, and so on. But we also know that uh, with globalization on one side and with the raise in the international agenda of uh, environment-related issues, these two things cannot be on a sort of collision course. There has to be a synergy, a coupling, a hand-in-hand working between these two planets. And you're absolutely right, the European Union is the one that has been trying and thinking to do that for some time. And the uh, Object de l'Or has embarked on a, on a series of briefs which precisely propose, describe, models, templates, policy tools that allow a much better connection between environment and trade, starting, of course, with a deep review of economic thinking about these two things. There are some who say trade opening is efficient. It allows for a more rational, a better allocation of production factors, including natural resources. So opening trade, specialization, international division of labor will lead to a better overall environment result, given that including natural resources, are better managed. If Saudi Arabia looks at what it costs to produce wheat, they will obviously decide that environmentally this is stupid. They won't stop eating wheat. They will go to the international market and we need a big, deep international market for wheat. On the other side, others will say, oh, oh, oh look at this huge transport spaghetti bowl which you create in importing pencils from Japan to the European Union. It makes no sense. It's costly, emits a lot of CO2. And on top of that, these uh, big ships are doing a lot of noise that seriously disturbs the marine fauna. Both sides have good arguments. The question is, how can you make them work together? And for this, there is an obvious silver bullet which all economists would agree on, in theory, uh, which is a proper carbon pricing as far as climate change is concerned. I think all economists would agree that if you price carbon at uh, around 130 euros a ton, 
then relative prices will put pressure on the localization and the modernization and the innovation production systems, whether goods and services. So this is the silver bullet. Uh, the problem being, as we all know, and this is something which the Dutch-French paper basically recognizes, uh, that we need to look at other options for the moment, not that we shouldn't increase carbon pricing, which we we do in the European Union, uh, but this is not yet too worldwide. Hence, this issue which you mentioned on this border carbon adjustment, which we will now deal with. Geneviève, turning to the carbon border adjustment, you've written a paper exploring this issue on how the EU can implement it. How would it work? And better yet, how to put it in practice, also given WTO rules? First of all, I would like to come back to the logic of our proposal. As soon as the EU has set the carbon neutrality objective by 2050, we know that we will need a high CO2 price to get there. This will mean for carbon-intensive industries a high weight. And if we do not install a carbon adjustment mechanism at the border, the result may well be carbon leakage, which means that we do not reach the common objective of reducing CO2 emissions worldwide. So this would be a stupid attitude. So we need to ensure that this carbon leakage does not occur. At the logic of the proposal is especially focused on carbon-intensive industries, we have in the EU an instrument that is dealing with the emissions of these industries, which is the ETS. So what we propose is to have a border carbon adjustment mechanism, which is parallel to the ETS. And the price of the tonne of carbon at the border will be the one of the similar domestic product. We propose to start with cement and electricity. Cement is a usual suspect. Electricity is not. However, we have learned, especially when we were making a presentation at the OECD Sustainable Development Commission in late February, that there are already evidence of carbon leakage with some neighboring countries in the electricity sector, namely from Morocco to Spain and from Ukraine to certain EU countries and maybe also in the Balkans. So as we have already evidence of carbon leakage, it is interesting to include electricity in the mechanism. What we have seen also through the COVID-19 crisis is the sensitivity of the price of the ton of carbon inside ETS to such events. And that's why we have added to our proposal an element which is a price floor. We intend to do it step by step and to have a two-year test period with these two pilot projects, allowing for negotiations especially with our main trading partners, and also uh, for creation of uh, special regimes for the least developed countries. In order to respond to WTO 
legal uh, principle, uh, we propose to set up an agency made of experts coming from diverse countries and not only from the EU, and that would be in a capacity to judge when importers consider that price that has been set for them is not a fair price. So all the characteristics of the BCA that we propose and that I have detailed now are dictated by the necessity to respect the WTO principle, especially fairness, non-discrimination and transparency. I'm speaking with Geneviève Ponce and Pascal Lamy. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about what now for sustainable trade, the climate agenda and the global trade system. At a time when the multilateral rules-based order is under threat, conversations about global trade and its contribution to prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020. This series of podcasts is brought to you by AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break, and I'm here with Geneviève Ponce, Director General of the Brussels office of the Jacques Delors Institute, and Pascal Lamy, the President Emeritus of the Jacques Delors Institute, and of course, former Director General of the WTO and former EU Trade Commissioner. I'm curious whether you've already received responses to this proposal. How has it been received either in Brussels or in Geneva? Well, for the time being, it has been well received, frankly, really very well received. We presented it with Sabine Veillant, uh, who is uh, heading DigiTrade and who considered these, what we propose as one of the options that the European Commission is presently considering, one of the three options, actually. If I may, I really think that I was the best one, but Sabine was not yet in the position to say so, because the Commission is considering, uh, well, has to be to consider three options. So it was well received in, uh, in Brussels, also in the European Parliament. The other person who was presenting and commenting our proposal was uh, Bernd Lange, who is heading the, the Trade Committee in the European Parliament. So you see that we had two very good godfather and mother. In the OECD, we presented our proposal in the presence of uh, Mr. Gouria in a commission which is chaired by Connie Hedegaard. And the comment she made when we had finished to present our proposal was that she was surprised by positive character of the reactions that we got, and especially from a person who was in Washington in the 
chamber of uh, representatives and who said that he was open to considering such a proposal. I think that, first of all, we have put a lot of accent on the necessity to respect WTO principles, which is not surprising as that's a proposal that we have drafted with Pascal Lamy. So when we speak about respect of fairness, respect of non-discrimination and respect of transparency, we know about what we are talking. And so we have designed our proposal in the best possible manner to answer to these three principles. Second, we are realistic and we know that there is absolutely no way to even dream to impose such a mechanism. So such a mechanism will have to be negotiated and presented to our main trading partners in cooperative manner. It is not out of reach. Many of these trading partners have something which look like a carbon price, but more precisely, an ETS. Uh, this is the case for China. The Chinese system, which is less mature than ours, has been designed on the model of existing ones, especially the EU ones and the Californian ones. So we have, I would say, a good common field with China and the habitude in this domain to talk, especially as far as ETS is concerned. As I have just mentioned, there is uh, something similar uh, existing in California and which is mature. There is such a system in Canada, there is such a system in South Korea and also in New Zealand, and there are other CO2 pricing systems elsewhere in the world. We have, of course, a big question mark with the United States that I do not need to develop, I guess. So it will very much depend on what will happen in the next elections. But this cooperative approach... I think has a lot of merits because the aim is not certainly to impose a BCA to anybody, including to the EU itself. It's to get together to common carbon price, which will give the right signal to reach the Paris Agreement targets. We need a very high carbon price to get there and we cannot do it in isolation. So this is the logic of it. So we need to convince our partners to go with us in the same direction. I think that's why we have so far received good reaction, not only inside the EU, but also when we went at the OECD. And maybe I'm not sure that it is surprisingly but in this committee at the OECD, we had representatives of intensive industries and they were in favor of it. But there is still a subject of discussion. They are hoping that free allowances can remain even if there is a border carbon adjustment, which is not the case. We need to adjust the pricing at the border to the pricing domestically. So it means that if 
they keep their free allowances, there is no question of having a border carbon adjustment mechanism. It has to be parallel. It has to evolve in a simultaneous manner. This is really something which for us, considering the WTO principles, is obvious, but there is still an effort to be made to convince at least certain intensive industries. It's interesting. You mentioned the cooperative element of the proposal, which certainly is key. And the countries you mentioned aren't necessarily the ones you would expect immediately, for instance, China. Also, with respect to the United States, I just like to echo what you said, that though at the federal level, there may be some problems that individual states might actually be allies in terms of pushing this forward. This brings me to a further question for you, Pascal, regarding the international dynamic and, of course, also what's happening at the WTO level. We're all aware of the problems that the WTO confronts. We're all quite anxious to see what a new director general will be able to achieve to bring other countries together to set new rules. How do you think that the bottom-up quality of, for instance, the BCA that we just talked about and finding individual allies, is that the route now to moving the debate to the WTO level and setting rules that take climate objectives into account? Or how should we see the interplay at the WTO level regarding climate? Well, the border carbon adjustment which we just discussed is related to what I believe is the main policy connection between trade and environment, which is carbon pricing. Now, this is not the only connection. A, because as we know, there's nothing like a global carbon price for the moment, and it will take a bit of time to get there. And second, because carbon pricing relates mostly to climate change, whereas there is a host of other environmental issues, such as, for instance, biodiversity, which matter. And although the case can be made that the whale uh, is a big carbon sink and that if whales deplete, then carbon sinking is less easy, there are many other issues, which is why we also need to look at global trade agreements or bilateral trade agreements. But before doing that, we also have to look at environmental agreements. There are quite a host of environmental agreements that have trade-related dispositions, like the Convention on Endangered Species or the Convention on Dangerous Chemicals. There are environmental agreements that impose trade obligations on their parties, which we should not forget because it's not just a question of trade agreements factoring in environment, it's also environmental agreements factoring in trade agreements. On the WTO, I think this is a major issue. Noting that WTO is a recent organization, its constitution, its treaties date from 1994, and they are, at least in principle, making a clear connection between trade and environment. The WTO Charter disposes in its frontline principle the fact that trade opening has to be a contribution to a number of welfare issues, growth, employment, and sustainability uh, environment-wise. So the principle is there. The question, of course, is how can you make multilateral trade rules more environmental-friendly? And there's, in our view, quite 
wide spectrum of possibilities, which we will suggest very soon in an EGD brief, starting with market access. There is a way and there is scope and room to specifically facilitate trade of goods and services which are environment friendly. Then you come to what is exactly environment friendly good, but there is a negotiation going on, which is called the Environmental Goods Agreement, where there would be given a priority to opening trade, this uh, sort of environmental friendly uh, fostering facilitating area. There are other areas like disciplines on subsidies, for instance, that could be better used in order to facilitate environmental objectives. As we all know, there is a big negotiation on harmful fisheries subsidy, for instance, which has been going on for now 20 years and which may be nearing time of completion. There have been proposals which we will re-detail about using the WTO framework on subsidies to discipline fossil subsidies, which we know are environmentally harmful. So this is the sort of using WTO disciplines to ban or reduce harmful subsidies. There is also a possibility for WTO rules on subsidies to have specific waivers that would allow subsidizing under some conditions uh, production systems that favor more the greening of production systems. So there is an ample scope to do that. Now, whether this will be the priority of the World Trade Organization for the years to come post-COVID, if there's ever a post-COVID world, is unclear. My own view, for what it's worth, is that absorbing the consequences of the huge economic COVID crisis will have a priority over moving greener to the WTO, not least because there needs to be very strong political energy in order to avoid this issue becoming north-south dividing issues. For a long time, uh, developing countries in the WTO have had a suspicion that the northern part of the world economy is trying to impose on them a sort of new green protectionism. There is this suspicion, whether good faith or bad faith is a matter of judgment. But of course, this has to be factored in, which is why, for instance, as Geneviève Ponce said, any border carbon adjustment system has to Factoring the least developed country component. Now, this is for the multilateral side. There is also scope for the bilateral side. Assuming bilateral agreements are WTO plus, they are more open than the WTO global agreements. They have more disciplines than the WTO agreements, not least because what you can do bilaterally is easier than what you have to do multilaterally with a sort of least common denominator. On this, there are also possibilities in order to go further in greening bilateral trade agreement, in making it clearer that opening trade has to bring a contribution to protecting the environment with higher green conditionalities, for instance, with better sustainability impact assessments, which is putting a sort of transparency on the environment and impact of increasing trade. As we've said, there are pros and cons there. With more monitoring or more association of civil society or business to the monitoring of these clauses. So there's quite a large, again, scope to move forward. Uh, my final point on this will be looking even further than that. 
in my view, and I have some trade experience, what will really matter in the future is the standards, norms, which have to go global. If you take the example, cleaning production systems, of cleaning the logistics of trade flows, there is a lot to be done on standardization of clean shipping. There is a lot to be done on the standardization of clean aviation. There is a lot to be done on the standardization of clean timber or clean soya. And this is not yet really, for the moment, under the spotlight. My view, which fits with my view that globalization will keep moving, although there will be a bit of deglobalization here and there, notably following the COVID crisis. But I think this is the real, real way to go, because in the future, leveling the playing field in environment and in trade will be best done by countries, regulators, agreeing on what it means to go green. This, of course, raises major organizational problems at international level, because this is not for the WTO to decide what is a proper pesticide residue or what is proper uh, standard for clean aviation. So it probably needs long-term, sometime uh, reshuffling, reconsideration of the institutional global translation of this coupling of the trade and uh, environment planet. That's a very impressive list of suggestions, which I think are tremendously useful. One issue I'd like to get your view on, Pascal, is the more defensive side of using trade agreements to achieve climate objectives. Namely, one of the oft-mentioned criticisms is that the commitments that have been made so far are non-binding. And how do you move from a non-binding set of climate commitments in FTAs to a more binding set without being accused of that green protectionism? Correct. This is a very serious point, which of course implies that there is a difference in environment protection between two trade partners. A trade agreement must have, as one of its purposes, to level the playing field in environment protection. And of course, in the case of the EU, who's usually top of the tree, this means bringing a trade partner with which uh, you have a bilateral trade agreement upwards. And this is the sort of big problem. How can you do that without looking protectionist is, of course, a major question. But I think on the other side, the notion that you need the European Parliament approval to ratify a bilateral trade deal also has to come into the picture. And I can tell you my view on this, and I'm looking at things on a sort of 30 years time frame, is that in the future, there will be no majority in the European Parliament to ratify a trade agreement if they don't become more biting green-wise. For instance, in putting the implementation of the national targets of the Paris Agreement into the frame of the trade agreement and making the implementation of these targets a essential clause of the trade agreements, which means that if you don't meet the target, then the benefits that accrue from the trade agreement uh, will disappear. Now, I do recognize it's a very high way of leveraging environment conditionality, 
But I think this is the way to go if you want to keep trade open. You know, the relationship between environment and trade is a bit like the relationship uh, between EU, US and China. We have to be better at factoring in what some see as an unfair game and an unlevel playing field. This is probably the way to go. Thank you very much for that. And with that, I'd like to round off. We've spent some time talking about the dilemma between, on the one hand, managing openness and protection. We've talked about concrete suggestions and initiatives from you, from the Jacques Delors Institute, also that are percolating through into EU policies regarding the border carbon adjustment. We've talked about the WTO and its role in the climate agenda. There is enough room to continue this conversation. I'm particularly intrigued by your suggestion, Pascal, that we need to think about a reshuffling of the global institutions to empower regulators to move that discussion forward of how to set standards that are climate friendly for production techniques, transport, logistics, etc. But for now, I think we've done a very good job in exploring this dynamic between global trade and climate action. And I'd like to thank you, thank both of you, Geneviève Ponce and Pascal Lamy for spending your time with me today. And uh, we will also make sure that the publications you mentioned are referenced and available to find on the AIG Global Trade Series website. So with that, thank you very much. Until next time. The AIG Global Trade Series is an international partnership between AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and interviews from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020.